This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Jeanette Kilpack was born and raised in Utah and is the second to the youngest of nine kids. Jeanette has overcome many hurdles in her life, including sexual, mental, and physical abuse at the hands of her father, the untimely deaths of several loved ones, incarceration for six years, and persecution within the church. Through it all, she has remained a faithful follower of her Savior most of her life. Jeanette has been married to her sweetheart, Rick Kilpack, for 27 years this April. Together, they have five girls. A couple of other tidbits about her. Jeanette is proud to claim that she is the sixth great-granddaughter of Daniel Boone and that she is an avid Yankees fan, distantly related to Yankees manager Aaron Boone. So welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm Tara McCausland, and I want to thank you, Jeanette, for being willing to share your story today. I was honestly just gobsmacked, like speechless as I was listening to Jeanette tell more about her story as we were, we were preparing for this interview. So Jeanette really has been through hell. And yet what's remarkable to me is that she still chooses God and chooses to love him. And Jeanette, people like you just confirm to me what I am becoming more and more sure of. And that is that faith is a choice. So I have no doubt that our listeners will learn a great deal from you. Um, but to get started, I know I mentioned a little bit of this in your bio, but tell me a little bit about your, your home life growing up and what that was like. Sure. Um, so as you said, I am second to the youngest of nine. I have four brothers and four sisters and all of us to one degree or another were abused by my father. My mom was also very physically abused by my dad and I witnessed that many times and stuff. And she kind of came from a rough background herself and was a convert to the church. And she just tried her hardest to do what was right and to learn and to go. And my dad was a professor for BYU and he grew up in the church. He comes from very prominent pioneer heritage. Um, we're related to the Richards. Um, Willard Richards, who was in jail with Joseph Smith, is my third great-grandpa, I think. Um, I do kind of joke about that because I say it's kind of a family tradition that we all go to jail. Um, <laughs> because my dad, obviously, I mean, not obviously, but I turned my father in when he was, when I was 14. And so he went to the Point of the Mountain prison for five years. So... So, yeah, I was really surprised that out of everybody in my family, that I would be the one that ended up going to prison and being in my eyes, kind of like my father in that aspect, because I overcame so much um, as a youth and turned my life around and went back to church and was doing absolutely everything I possibly could to be living a good, faithful life. I um, went to church. I was going to the temple every week. I was, you know, doing what most people would consider a faithful, active Latter-day Saint. And then the next thing you know, kind of all falls apart and I'm in prison. So it was super confusing in some points, but to go back to my childhood and bringing up, like 
I say my mom was a convert and she tried really hard to raise us in the gospel. And my dad, he actually was the opposite. He comes from this pioneer rootstock, but obviously the lifestyle he's choosing to live. Um, he was very anti-church and would actually mock my mom a lot when we would try to hold family home evenings or things like that. And so my foundation of the gospel and some of just your basic things, I wasn't really ever taught or grasped hold of. Um, so it, yeah, it was just kind of interesting when we, when I got married and started going back to church, my husband was like, you don't understand fasting. You don't understand where this goes to you. You've never read the book of Mormon all the way, like all these kind of you're born and raised in the church. And it's like, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't get that foundation. I didn't want my dad to baptize me. So I had my brother who was my absolute favorite brother baptize me, but my dad confirmed me. And for the longest time, I felt like an imposter in the church because my dad confirmed me and I knew all of his sins and darkness and and all of those things. And so I, I assumed that his power was not valid. Right. So my confirmation back in the back of my mind, I always felt like it never, he didn't have the right to give it to me. So I never got it. Does that make sense? I really felt like he didn't have the power or the authority to do the things he was doing. And that really influenced how I felt towards my own relationship with heavenly father and struggling already with father issues. Right. And, and that did, that did make my self-worth and my closeness to the church and which then kind of relates to, to the Lord struggle. I struggled with that for a really long time until I got a greater grasp on how God really works and works through imperfect people. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been an issue in my life of kind of feeling like I'm not good enough, um, that I'm a black eye, that I am just a, a problem child that the Lord has to deal with. That, that is a constant recurring struggle or theme that through all my trials, I finally was able to overcome, but it influenced a lot of my trials. Hmm. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing this up because I know that there are so many people who have been raised in homes where looking from the outside in, people think everything is peachy keen, no issues, but there is abuse or there's, there's some type of a secret being held and the children watching this see the hypocrisy. They connect that experience and the hypocrisy with the church. And as you had expressed feeling like, you know, my dad confirmed me, but I knew he wasn't worthy to confirm me. I had similar questions and some of my siblings had similar questions uh, when we understood that our father was engaged in illicit sexual behavior through many of those years when he was performing those priesthood ordinances, et cetera. And so I think that's a really important point to bring up, Jeanette. And I do appreciate it because it, the ability to separate the priesthood and the men that hold the priesthood from the church is key. And being able to develop a relationship with God separate from the church and separate from fallible people within the church is also a foundational principle. So at 14, you, you turned your father in, which would have taken a huge amount of courage. And then you left the church for a time. Can you tell us what was your relationship like with God during that period? And what brought you back into the church? Sure. 
Yeah. So it was really, really difficult. And like you're saying that whole separating man and from the church is really hard. My, my siblings, like I say, I'm second, the youngest of nine. And I think I could say maybe three, sometimes I guess you could say four, they would probably say more, um, are actual faithful going to church, not struggle with the gospel. And the rest of them have just really had a hard time. My sister had her name removed because she can't separate the church from God and Christ and that relationship. And my dad was a BYU professor, very well known in, in society, uh, high, high, high up in BYU. And, you know, that's God's church. And when all of this went down, they chose to what they felt like was best for keeping my mom financially secure and keeping the family together. Although as the victims and in the middle of the crisis, we saw it different, the children, but they, you know, said, Hey, let's just retire my dad and give my mom all of his retirement and let the kids have uh, scholarships and just continue on in this great way and kind of gave us this big care package but also said, if we went to the media with any of this, then the care package would be gone. And so in our eyes, it was more of hush, hush. We don't talk about abuse. This isn't to be talked about. Our image is more important than the individual. And that was really hard. That sent me on a spiral. Um, I wouldn't step foot on BYU property for a long time, but somehow I'm just a feisty individual. And I'm one of those people that is kind of like all in or all out. And I still just loved the Lord. Like not, not necessarily, I guess the Lord, cause I've learned that God and heavenly father and the Lord are different. But in the moment it was, I still just always prayed that there was a God. I, I believed that there was a divine power and I always prayed and would talk to him and, and tell him, things that bothered me and I'd be angry and, and stuff, but I never let go of the idea that there was a God that I was to report to, or that was in charge of everything. Now I didn't always feel close to him. <laughs> it's not like my prayers were these big fabulous things and all day, every day or anything like that, but the concept of a God never left. And I did always pray, but I did stop going to church at 14 because I felt like Everything that happened with my dad and how the church handled that was inappropriate. The bishop in our ward tended to kind of feel like to us that he sided more with our dad. Same type of thing. Just keep everything real quiet. Let's just handle this real quietly. Let's kind of sweep things under the rug and get this done. Are you sure this really happened to all of you? And you guys didn't just kind of like get together and come up with a story. Um, it was just kind of a weird situation. So I didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with church. But my husband, so we started dating. He doesn't like people to know, but we started dating when I was 16. He's eight years older than me. And that did bother him for a little bit. And so we broke up, but we got back together mm -hmm. <laughs> and we got married and had a kid right away. It wasn't necessarily the plan, but that's what happened. And so Coley comes into our life and I bring her home. Tuesday. And I remember just so distinctively, powerfully looking at her and I just started sobbing. The idea of this 
and this just absolutely beautiful, perfect child not being with me forever, somehow I had gained that testimony. Like that testimony was just installed in me of eternity and families are forever and the power of the temple. I don't know where that honestly came from because it's not something, my mom didn't go to the temple all the time. Temples weren't talked about. Eternal family was not like this thing, but it is in our gospel, right? So, I mean, it had, I must've picked it up in primary or something, but I didn't realize that it was this core powerful thing that I had and it changed everything. I looked at her and I said, I promise you, I will not lose you. And I did whatever it took from then on. I went to church that, that very Sunday with my little balloon thing for just having a baby. So I could sit on a chair. I mean, I took it with me and, and we were going to church and that was, that was that. And when I say I'm all in or all out type of person, we went to church every Sunday and I started just going to the Bishop and saying, look, I got to clear up some past things in my life. I, I was a rebel teenager. I did things I probably shouldn't have done, but I want to put my life together. I want to get my patriarchal blessing. I, I want to do these things and I want to get married in the temple. And I wanted, I wanted my kid forever. And so that was a huge change in my life and it, it changed everything. Hmm. I really love that. When we focus on the foundational principles of the gospel, mm-hmm. and not on people, <laughs> oh, yeah. church, that changes everything because people will always disappoint us. And often it can become very hazy what truth is if we start setting people up on these pedestals and recognizing their humanity. And suddenly, you know, our, our faith crumbles if, if that's where our testimony lies. But if we focus on principles, on truth, like eternal families and covenants and ordinances, which is apparently what brought you back, I think that that, that is what will connect us to God because that is truth. And so I love that you're not sure where (laughs) that came from, but that was enough of a motivator to get you back to church because you wanted an eternal family. And so I would say for those who are listening, um, if you are struggling with some aspect of the church or with an individual within the church, maybe there's some cultural element, find that piece of the gospel, that core doctrine whether it be eternal families or understanding that there is a plan for each of God's children, whatever it is that hits home for you, let that be an anchoring point for you in your faith. Because I think Jeanette, you're absolutely right. Like you needed something (laughs) to bring you back. And that was it for you. And we all need that sometimes when we've, when we've been disappointed by people in the church, moving forward from there, you had this beautiful daughter, Tell, tell us more about your family as, as your family grew. So we had Coley and it had been a couple years and no other children, but I wasn't necessarily, you know, worried about that per se, because uh, having a big family wasn't a desire of mine. I'm young. You know, I had her when I was 19, still pretty self-centered, self-focused. And so the idea of 
popping out lots of kids and getting fat and old and ugly was not on my <laughs> list of things to do. But um, she, all of a sudden, one day, she just stands on the kitchen table and puts her cute little hands on her hips and gives me that look because she's got sass just like her mom and says, my baby sister's name is Tane. And I was like, yeah, okay. And my husband, love him on Tuesdays. Um, he, he jumped right on board and he was like, oh yeah. And they started talking all about her baby sister and naming her and all this stuff. And they came up with this name of Cassandra Tane and, and it was just adorable and cute. And I'm looking at both of them saying, uh, yeah, that's not happening. Right. Like mm -hmm. we're not happening now. That's not happening, but it did, you know, start the wheels churning in my head about kids and, and things like that. And next thing I know, I mean, we're still not having kids. So I start looking into adoption. And I look at doing foster care so that you bring the kids in and then adopt through foster care. And it just never came together. I tried. It just was a roadblock. And so I was like, all right, that's not happening. So then I approached my husband and said, I really want to adopt out of Africa. And he was like, yeah, no, that's not happening because there are a lot of that that's just really hard. And there's a lot of disease involved in that. And you don't know if they're healthy and then they'll get over here and pass away. And like, he was just like, no, no, we are not going to do that. We are going to go domestic. So we did we found an adoption agency and we ended up adopting a beautiful little girl from South Carolina, um, African-American. And we named her Cassandra Tane and she was beautiful. She was 18, 18 months, 20 months by the time we got her into the home. Um, but unfortunately, Cassandra had been through a lot of trials in her short period of life. And I'm still a very young, um, immature mother who had her first child who really, I was like, why did people complain about being a parent? I mean, I would look at my daughter and say no. And she'd be like, okay. I mean, she was just super easy. And she was almost five before I brought Cassandra into the home. So it was like, you know, we, it was easy. Parenting was super easy. And Cassandra came with her own bag of issues and she had some severe abandonment issues. She ended up being diagnosed with RAD, which is reactive attachment disorder. And it was a struggle. It was really, really hard. So as I'm going through that um, and trying to decide how to work through that, I thought, well, maybe if she had another sibling and a sibling that she could relate more with, maybe that it would help her. It would help her feel more connected to us and connected as a family and not maybe an outsider. And, and by this time we had started therapy and, and gone to many therapists and I remember telling my therapist this, like, I, I really, you know, of course I want another child. So it's not just to help Cassandra, but I really feel like this would be beneficial to help her. And he looked at me and he was like, you're crazy. It's like, she's got a lot of issues 
and you want to do this again? And I was like, yeah, I just really feel like it would really help her. So we started down the adoption process again. This time I didn't ask my husband for permission. I Mm. just started the process of adopting out of Africa. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And um, we ended up adopting a beautiful little girl out of um, Ethiopia and brought her home. Uh, She was 13, 13 months old when Cassandra passed away. And I was pregnant with Stasi, unbeknownst to me. Um, well, not, I mean, I right quickly at the exact same time. Like it was, it was pretty crazy while we were going through all of the hardship of Cassandra passing away and me being charged with her death and going to trial and all that other stuff. I ended up pregnant again, not that we were trying, we really weren't because of the whole situation, but another little miracle came into our life and we had another little girl. So I given birth to three girls and then we've adopted two. Wow. So you have your hands full. Yes. <laughs> Lots of little people and you're navigating, trying to basically stay out of jail at this point, yes. right? <clears throat> yes. Trying to keep our family together. Um, like I said, so Cassandra passed away. There was just Allie and Coley. And then I was pregnant at the time. So dealing with all of that, Stasi was born and it took three and a half years to go through the whole process of trial and being charged in court hearings and meetings after meetings and all the other stuff. And then uh, I had a baby right before we ended up going to trial. She was born five and a half weeks early, but which was a blessing in disguise because then I was able to actually have more time with her. When I ended up, I was found guilty in October and then awaiting sentencing. I was still home all this time. I was home. I was never in jail. They never arrested me and I didn't have to post bail or anything like that. I was home with the kids. Um, So I was found guilty in October and then sentencing ended up happening in January. And I was sentenced on one to 15 and to the state prison. And normally you go to the county jail and stay there a little while until there's a room that opens up at the prison. But my case got a little bit out of control and picked up by the media and it went national because of the rare situation behind Cassandra's death. Um, And so they instantly took me up for security reasons up to the prison. So I didn't even do a day in jail, so, which actually ended up being another miracle in disguise that I would have never realized. So everybody thinks jail is like way less and, you know, not as bad as prison, but jail is way worse than prison. So really, hmm. yeah, there's no, there's no, uh, classes. There's no Institute. I, you get Sunday and volunteers come in basically on Sunday, but there's so much more available for you in the prison and it's just a completely different environment. And it's actually, if you're looking to find tools to change your life, there's more of those in prison than there is in jail. 
Now, just for some clarification, and I fully respect that you're not wanting to share details about the day that Cassandra passed away. Um, but what can you tell our listeners just, sure. just for some basic understanding mm-hmm. so they understand why you were tried and why you were incarcerated and perhaps why your husband wasn't, which is unusual. Yes. So like I said, Cassandra had some abandonment issues and some um, bonding issues because of she was abused as a child and, and came from a background that was a little rough too, which I was not aware of when we adopted her, which is, wouldn't probably have changed a thing in my decision anyway. But um, so I kind of went into it a little blinded and naive and just really felt like if I just loved her enough that everything would be great and it would all work out. You know, you just have to love them. And while that is true in one aspect, I didn't have enough skills and coping mechanisms and my own issues, my own lack of self-worth, my own lack of purpose to uh, be able to take the constant attack of motherhood that would come from this situation and handle it with grace. And so I struggled. I struggled a lot with uh, the issues of being constantly rejected by my daughter. Um, That's part of the reactive attachment disorder. The main caregiver really struggles with, or the child struggles with the main caregiver because they have this deep fear of abandonment that they don't even realize it's really subconsciously. And so they sabotage relationships so that they're in control of the abandonment at all times. And so she would reject me and and just leech onto other people and love them. And, and kind of almost, it would seem to me, she was not doing this, but in my weakness, it would seem that she was purposefully trying to make me see how much she loved everybody else besides me. And that just kind of really went towards some of my own core issues that I picked up from being abused myself. And so there was a struggle. We went through a lot of therapy, got her into some therapy that tried to work with, they were actually certified with the state and, and tried to work with all this stuff. And it was, their advice was horrendous. But at this point, I really, with all my heart, once I told you before, I'm all in for all out type of gal. And they were telling me, this is this, and this is this. And if you want to save your child, and if you want to give her a chance of being normal and happy and healthy, and you will follow step-by-step everything we tell you to do. And, and I was like, sweet. Yeah. You're like, I'm on board. And, um, unfortunately a lot of that was very unkind behavior that is easily to be done over board too much, um, but Cassandra passed away because over time her sodium lower sodium levels lowered. And the day that she passed away, I gave her a significant amount of water and not as much as the court said I did, but a significant amount. And it caused that sodium level that had already been lowering over time to be too low. And she passed out. They didn't realize that her sodium was level long story short between the the medical field and myself, there were so many things that played into the, her death. We could have easily filed a lawsuit, which we were told to many, many times against the medical staff for how they handled her sodium level. But it all ended up just getting pinned back on me because I made some really poor choices in 
how to handle her behavior. And it was not kind and loving and patient. And I was more than willing to spill my guts to the police about every single little mistake I'd ever made in all of the three and a half years of raising her. And they just kind of compiled it all to be like one day. And um, it was horrendous. I, I have always said, you know, if everything that the media has ever said about me was absolutely true, I'd hate me too. And it's just not, it's not the situation that happened. And she ended up dying from hydronatremia, um, which just means her sodium level got too low and fluid just went throughout her entire body. Um, and she, she passed away in June of 2002. And I was charged with child abuse homicide. So was my husband because we were both there that day. Um, and he was, yeah, he was found innocent and I was found guilty because I was the one who gave her the water while he was home teaching. So hmm. somehow that seemed to make the difference, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we were tried at the same time. So it was really, really, really weird for one to be found innocent and one to be found guilty. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I took the liberty of, of looking up some articles about mm-hmm. your, your background, just to get some clarification. And, you know, I think about how I may have responded pre parenthood <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and now as a parent, understanding how difficult it can be to be a mother. I'm so grateful for experience because it, if we allow our hard experiences to change us, it produces compassion. And I think about probably some of my ugliest moments have been when I've been dealing with toddlers. <laughs> Kids who do not want to listen, do not want to hear. And it's very easy for us to judge people looking at an article in the newspaper. But everyone has a story. And there are details that we don't understand so often just looking at a police report. And so what you said about, you know, the people who end up in prison, the cesspool of society. And yet you, someone who by no means intended to harm your daughter ended up incarcerated. So I just, it's just a reminder that we need to give every single person the benefit of the doubt. It was pretty, um, the whole, the whole situation with raising my daughter was so hard for me because my intentions were always wanting to give her what she needed and what was best for her. It wasn't to try and torture her or any of those things that it comes across as. And I remember just being so hard on myself every time I would even slightly mess up with her because I came from an abusive background because I'd been through that myself. I remember the first time I ever grabbed her and pinched her little cheek because she was, you know, doing nothing that she, no child deserves to have their cheek pinched. Right. But I was freaking out and I called my bishop and I just start bawling to him saying, I pinched her cheek. And he was like, Jeanette, like if I had every mother calling me for every time they screwed up with their daughter, 
I would be on the phone 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, but you don't understand. Like, I, I don't ever want to be that person. I want to just love her and give her what she needed. And it was so hard for me because I was really hard on myself for any time I messed up with her. And, and there was always kind of that voice in the back of my head of somebody would do a better job. She deserves to be with somebody else. Um, you're a horrible mother. You, you should not have this child. Right? Th those haunting feelings would come. And the process of adoption is you have them in your home for six months. And they do home visits and you talk with the social worker and all that stuff. And we passed and we go to the courthouse and, and she becomes legally ours, which was a, an absolutely beautiful day. And I kept thinking this, this will make a difference. Like just having her legally ours and this stuff, make a difference for her. It'll make a difference for me. And then we were able to go to the temple finally and have her sealed to us. And I remember having Coley sealed to us because we weren't married in the temple and we got our lives together. And I, I just, it's like the most beautiful thing. I was thinking every kid should be sealed, forget born in the covenant. Like let's do sealings to your children because it's absolutely beautiful and such a special moment. And so I'd had that experience already knew what to prepare for, knew what to, what was going to happen and all of that. But when we had Cassandra sealed to us, it was an experience that was another one of those life altering temple experiences for me. And it was, it, it is still one of the most, the most amazing spiritual experiences I have ever had. I just sobbed and cried when she walked through that room. She had so many angels with her and she was so beautiful. And the spirit was like pea soup. It was so thick in there. And nobody in the room had a dry eye. And it was just so, and like I said, I've been through this before. It's not, it wasn't the same. And I'm just sobbing and I'm just holding her and then telling her how sorry I am for not always being the mother she deserved. And the sailor comes over and says, I feel very impressed to let you know that the Lord is very pleased with, with, with what went on here today. And honestly, it was that moment because I had friends and neighbors and my own mother-in-law and people that didn't understand the trial and the hardship that I was going through and my desire to be a good mom and to help overcome this struggle of my own and, and Cassandra's struggle that those self-doubts would come back in that I shouldn't be her mom because somebody else should that I needed to give her up because she deserved better and she deserved more and I would remember that day in the temple and that witness that the Lord gave me that she was mine and that I could do this but I just needed to have faith and to trust and to move forward and I could do this and so I would, I would try again the next day and I would fail <laughs> until the time that she passed away. I failed every single day, but I tried, I tried really, really hard to, to do what would make her happy and what would help her. 
Well, I think that every parent listening can appreciate the struggle of trying to do probably it's, it's the hardest job in the world to be a parent. And when you're dealing with an adopted child who has so many challenges, as it sounds like Cassandra had, I hope that those who are listening, that there is some compassion because I, as I said before, you know, I thought I was such a patient person until I became a mother (laughs) and, and my most ugly moments have been when I've been trying to parent uh, difficult children or moments where they have been challenging behaviorally. And so again, a, a reminder to, to look upon others with compassion and to have the ability to draw on our own experience enough to recognize that most people are just doing the very best they can. And it may not look very pretty from the outside looking in, but moving on with your story, you've, you've been charged Mm -hmm. and um, tell us about your experience in being incarcerated. You, you end up being in prison for six years. I know that you, uh, as we, talked earlier this week, you described some of the the miracles that took place there, almost as if it, you were meant to go to prison, which like Joseph of Egypt, which I hate the idea that anybody would be meant to go to prison. But will you share with us some of those experiences? Sure. So here I am, you know, like I said before, I put my life back together. Um, I'm going to the temple as often as I possibly can trying to seek help and comfort and guidance. I, I do all the things that, you know, a typical member would do go to church every Sunday. When we go on vacations, I'm going to church every Sunday and I find myself all of the sudden, um, instead of in the temple, I'm in prison and it was pretty hard for me to wrap my mind around because my dad went to prison And as I said before, the cesspool society goes to prison, right? And I'm not one of those people. I'm separating myself from that concept. And what happens is when you first arrive to prison, you go through what's called intake. And they take you in and they weigh you and get you out of your street clothes and put you in your uniform and go through a bunch of stuff, fingerprint you. I'm sitting in the waiting room for that on a bench with this other girl. And I'm just sobbing. I am sobbing hysterically. I am terrified beyond terrified. And she's kind of calm and collected and, and she just looks, keeps looking over at me. And I tried to take deep breaths and, and stop bawling like a baby. And then I would start back up again, just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I remember her looking at me going, And she says to me, she says, what in the world do you keep thinking of to make you cry like that? And I could only get out my kids before I would just started sobbing hysterically. Again, my youngest is five and a half months old and my oldest is 10 and they're my everything. My kids have always been my everything. And it was just unfathomably for me to be there. And so then I get, and you hear stories, right? You watch TV, you hear stories of how horrible prison is. And I'm there for child abuse homicide. That's like the 
bottom of the charges of going to prison, right next to actually molesting children. And so I'm, I'm terrified of what's going to happen to me when I'm there. Um, the intake officer lady is super sweet to me, tries really hard to keep me isolated from the other girls that are coming through intake and just trying to make this transition as, as kind as she can without breaking any of the rules. And in fact, she gave me a, a chocolate cookie, which I come to find out later is breaking one of the rules. <laughs> but um, I had little things like that, like officers always looking out for me the exact same day I get put into what's called receiving an orientation. And that's a building where you only get out for one hour a day. Um, food is just slid under the door for you. I'm in lockdown, can't make phone calls. You can't have visits until a room opens back up in what's called population. And an officer calls me down and takes me into the supply room. I'm like, Oh, here it goes. Like I'm going to get beat. And, um, he just looks at me and he's like, I just want you to know that none of us, all of us officers have read your file and none of us believe that you should be here. And should you need anything, you need to let us know. But he did it very discreetly because me being friends with cops also is not a good thing for my um, reputation in prison. And I'm already being threatened. I have lots of girls that have come up to me when we have our hour out saying I killed somebody with a baseball bat, uh, lots of threats. I was terrified to eat the food that would come under my door because I figured it was poisoned. Um, I was blessed to have my first roommate to be actually a member of the church. And she got a book of Mormon for me, which I was just super excited for that I could just read and, and keep myself in that. And she was super sweet, super safe to be with that lasted a week. And then she left and she was like, you know, Jeanette, you're going to be okay. And we have never, we haven't even had a fight yet, which isn't normal. I'm like, going, what? Uh, she walks out and it's lunchtime. They shut the doors because they bring the trays to you and they let us out to go get our trays for lunch. And this one girl comes out of one room right next to me. And this other girl comes out of the other room right next to me. And they start going at it. They are just punching each other. They're in a full brawl, pulling hair, pulling, ripping their clothes off of each other, just a screaming cat fight. And I'm just standing there with my tray in awe, just going, what in the world is going on? And I hear over the speaker, racking, racking, everybody racking. I don't know any of the prison lingo yet. So I don't even know what that means. I'm just standing mm -hmm. there and I hear this sound of a thump, 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 thump. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And everybody's like, Jack, get in your room. And I was like, all right. So I get in and I shut my door and here comes, you know, the SWAT team because there's a fight and these two girls are still just going at it. They've got their little clear shields and that's what they were thunking onto the ground to, to intimidate, to let us know that they were on their way and they're breaking up the fight and I'm in my room and they slam the girl's face up against the window of my room. And I am terrified. I'm by myself in this room and I, there's like this little closet and I'm just sticking my head in the closet and I'm just, I want to go home. I want to go home. 
I want to go home. And I'm just sobbing. And the sweet officer from orientation pops her little head in and she's like, Jeanette, are you going to be okay? I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And she's like, don't worry. I'll get you a really good roommate. I was like, okay. And the next thing I know, I have this woman in my room and she's pregnant and she's obviously a gang member and she is swearing up a storm. She looks meaner than all mean. And I'm like going, I'm going to die. And I'm writing a letter to my husband that night explaining how all this is happening and that I'll probably be dead in the morning because she's going to stab me in my sleep. (laughs) Oh my word. And she, she goes to sleep and blankets haven't come yet. She came in really late at night. So finally they slide some blankets under the door and it's freezing. This is January and they don't turn the heat on in, in this, but they're they're trying to purposely make us miserable, right? Like it is absolutely freezing. And they slide that in and I'm like, she's pregnant. Like I can't just let her sit there shivering to death in her bed. So I hop down off my top bunk And I grab her blankets and I slowly lift up her head and stick one under her head for a pillow and hurry and throw the other one over her and jump up on top of my bed and just start praying. Please don't let her kill me. Please don't let her kill me. (laughs) Okay. That's like, you know, my first week in prison. Oh my word. And then you fast forward, which I'll, you know, there's other things, but you fast forward to a couple weeks, month before I'm leaving. And I've been there six years. I've been the unit coordinator. So I've, which it means I've been running my building and working with the deputy warden and, and the, all the cops in the building and everything to run our building and given great trust and power and two girls get into a fight and one girl is banging the other girl's face on the railing and they're fighting over the microwave, stupidest things they fight over in prison. But anyway, and they're all like, you know, rack in. And of course, by now I know what that means. And I'm sitting there going, you know what? Forget this. I am not losing all of this happening. Like you lose privileges. We get locked in for a couple hours, like all this stuff. I was like, nah, this isn't happening. This girl doesn't deserve to have her face beaten to the pole. No. And so I walk over there and I peel the two of them apart. I take the one girl and I chuck her into her room and shut her door, look at the other one and say, get in your room now. And she goes in and shuts her door. And then I go in and shut the door in my room. (laughs) And I'm just like, so, you know, big difference from the two years. I mean, the six years. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, what did I just do? Because if you interfere with a fight while you're in prison, you lose, you go to um, what's called max while they investigate the fight. And when you're in max, you get nothing like it's you get out once every three days for 15 minutes to take a shower chained to the shower. And so I'm sitting there going, I've got a visit today. Um, I've just lost all my phone calls. I, I have just messed absolutely everything up right before I'm going home, just beside myself. And all of a sudden I hear kill pack to the window. Oh, here we go. So I go down there and the sergeant's like, Kilpack, do you realize what you just did? And I was like, well, yeah. It's like, I had to explain to the investigating officers as they're going through the videos and they're like, who is that? They just split up this fight. And he's like, that's, that's just Kilpack. Like she's okay. I had to talk my way out. of not sending you to max. Okay. What did we learn from this? <laughs> 
Wow. I'll, I'll never touch anybody again, but it's those little blessings like that. Like I had so many times where the officers would protect me and, and watch over me, but so much great growth from entering prison to when I left prison. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. Hmm. So. You had spoken to me about your first three years, you were trying to appeal um, mm-hmm. so you could get out earlier and you had kind of a change of heart after your first three years. Can you tell us about that experience? Because I mean, here you are in prison, all the officers there say they don't believe you should be there. I'm sure you don't believe you should be there. What were your feelings toward God at this point? Or I guess, what were your feelings toward God those initial three years and what changed things for you? So nothing like as far as my devotion to the gospel, to staying a faithful member and doing everything I possibly could to continue that. So when, before I went to prison, I did have a church court and I was put on probation and I wasn't excommunicated, which is a huge blessing to still be able to have the spirit to help guide me through situations in prison. I had a blessing that told me that there were friends that had been placed in prison to help me and that I needed to make sure to listen to the spirit to stay safe. And so I'm doing everything I possibly can. When I was in RNO and had my beautiful first roommate that was LDS, she informed me that there was Institute and I was, I was just shocked. And she's like, yeah, you can go to Institute every day. And it was like this ray of hope in my, in my soul that I could go and, and be at the chapel for most of my time while I was there, because living in the actual prison buildings, it is basically like hell and heaven in the difference of feel the things that go on back in the tiers versus what's going on in the Institute church building. Right. And in the church building, there's lots of religions that come and and so many volunteers. And I was able to go to the chapel most days. And I did that. I hid out at the chapel from sunup to sundown. And that was my focus. So I was learning the scriptures. My husband sent in lots of books and I was studying Isaiah and revelations. And that was my focus. I called home every single day and had scriptures and prayers with my kids on the phone at seven o'clock every single day that I could, if there wasn't some reason why we were locked down or whatever, worked my way up through the system so that I could have as many phone calls as I needed and have, um, all the visits that they would allow, which is 16 visits a month. And my husband was faithful and would come to all those visits and bring the kids and And so, but that's my focus, right? Is really myself. I'm trying to survive. I'm getting blessings. And at the beginning of this, I'm getting blessings probably four times a week just to try and survive in the dark environment that I'm in. But my focus really is just on my survival and the survival of my kids and my husband. I I would write home every day. He would write to me every day. That was the focus. And Still through all that, there were so many miracles and blessings within my family of me calling home and, and knowing which kid was sick. And there was a really crazy situation that happened when I was first in RO. And 
that's when I can't get out yet. I'm not in the main population and I can't have visits and we're just getting letters back and forth. And it takes over a week for letters to process because they have to go through the mailroom and make sure you don't have contraband in them and all that stuff. And I'm on my bunk and just get this letter from my husband about how traumatic this is being on the kids, how Allie is having some serious PTSD and reverting and having night terrors and peeing on herself and, and just terrified and how the kids aren't sleeping at night. And, and, you know, they're, they're all of course struggling and I get this letter and I just start sobbing because I feel so responsible that this is my fault. I'm the one causing this pain on them. And I get up on my bunk and I just start praying to my kids and Stasi was really having a hard time. She, she wouldn't sleep at night and she would just cry and cry and cry and cry and cry. So I got on the bunk and I was praying specifically for her. And I was just pouring my heart out, telling Heavenly Father, please, you please just tell Stasi that her mama loves her and that everything will be all right. I get a letter a week later that says that Coley got up the exact same time I was saying this prayer because she heard my voice. Stasi had gone to bed and was just screaming and was just crying and nobody could get her to stop crying. And so everybody had just gone to bed and was just leaving her crying. And Coley heard, Stasi is going to be okay. Mama loves you. Everything's going to be all right. And she bolted out of bed and came running down the hall because she heard my voice. She knew I was there and instantly Stasi stopped crying and went to sleep. Hmm. There were so many moments like that where I would get my cheeks flushed and I would all of a sudden have this just undying impression that I needed to call home because one of the kids was sick or one of them was upset. It didn't really matter. And I would call home and they would need me at that exact moment. But that's the first three years. Like I had so many three and a half years, so many miracles of little things like that. And we're doing an appeal and the appeal is to overturn my charge. And there were a lot of things that happened in the trial that should have been done different. And one of them was that the judge refused to allow the jury instruction to let them know of a law that says that you cannot be charged with child abuse homicide if you were following medical advice. And the judge deemed that I was not following medical advice because it was therapy. It was a mental issue. And so she did not send that uh, instruction back to the jury. So we were pretty confident that that would clear my charge and at least get a new trial, but that I could, you know, I could win my appeal. And I'd had so many blessings and so many things happen that saying that you're going to witness a miracle and it'll be like Samuel the Lamanite when everybody thinks that the time has passed and that Christ's not coming and that it's not going to happen. And then the miracle happened and, and you're, you're going to receive a great miracle. And this is all right before the verdict is coming back. And 
I had conference had conference had come. Um, still waiting for the the verdict of the appeal. It has gone through and it's with the judges. And there's the conference talk from Elder Worthland that says, come what may and love it. And it was just an absolutely powerful talk for me. I based so much strength from that to continue to move forward because in that talk, it talks about the law of compensation. As I said, I base so many of my things on principles of the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. It's the law of compensation that for every tear that you cry, every sorrow, every pain, there will be a hundredfold of joy. And I had just had an instance. Well, after this talk, I go to visiting. And once again, it's Stasi and Lily. Lily's growing up. She was six and a half months, five and a half months old when I went to prison. So she's growing up just seeing me and visiting. And the two of them are just fighting over some flip flops <laughs> at visiting. And the visiting rules are rough. You can't have toys. They can't have books. They can have a plain piece of paper and some crayons. And they have to sit across the table from you after their certain age. There's no physical contact. Now, these two are so young enough that I can hold them in my lap and it's okay, but they are fighting. If you get a warning and you get three of them within a certain period of time, then you lose visits for six months. Nobody can come see you. And so we were very aware of this rule and always tried very hard to, if we get kicked out because the kids are too loud, that's one of the warnings, right? So we're trying to keep the girls just as happy and as quiet as possible. And we realize they're like coming over and looking at us and the guards are just kind of giving us that look. So we're going to have to end the visit early. And Rick starts packing and preparing the kids like we've got to go. But they realize they've been here enough. They realize that visiting hour is not over. And so Stasi starts having a meltdown because Stasi realizes that her fight with Lily over the flip-flops is what is causing them to leave. So she's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. She's like, she's still crying. She's still screaming. She's little. She's, she's like three, you know, she's just this tiny little thing. And um, we're rolling it up. And I walk her to the very edge of the carpet where I can go and I can't go any further. And she is screaming. I just want my mom. I just want my mom. I'm sorry. I'll be good. I promise. I just want my mom. Please let me just stay with my mom. I just want my mom. And they have to peel her off of me because she's crying and we don't want the warning. And you can hear her just sobbing. They shut the doors. There are these huge glass doors and they shut the doors and she's headed out of the visiting room and you can just hear her screaming. I just want my mom. Please just let me have my mom. And everybody in the visiting room is sobbing all of the inmates, all the visitors. And after a visit, you get taken into the back and you're stripped out to make sure that nobody passed you contraband. And I just completely fall to the ground because I'm so, it's so hard to see my kids struggle so much because of my choices. And it was that conference talk in that moment that goes through my head that tells me that I will have the same amount of joy to the same amount of depth of pain that I've had, that I am able to suck it up 
and to keep going, right? I'm again, I'm telling myself any day now, any day now the pill's gonna come through and I'm gonna be able to go home, take my kid to her first day of kindergarten, be there for my other daughter's baptism. And then the pill comes back and the judges agree that it is a medical case and that these things should be recognized, that it's in the DMV4 or whatever it's called. And that while that is true, they did not agree that it would have influenced the outcome of the trial. And so I'm denied and I lose my appeal. And I am devastated. I am absolutely just floored that for three and a half years I've been fasting every Sunday for my kids. I've been going to the Institute. I've been trying really hard to do everything I'm supposed to do. And once again, the answer is no. Hmm. No, you get to stay. And instead of you get to go to your daughter's first day of kindergarten and be there for your other daughter's baptism. It's who knows when you're going home and the board can keep you there as long as they want up to 15 years. And I don't even have a chance. I'd be going before the board for five years. So it's a pretty hard blow. Mm -hmm. And I am just devastated and I am pretty depressed for a couple days. And I remember going to institute and talking to my institute teacher who has been through so much himself and, and got me a lot. He had been through similar situations. He's adopted all of his kids. So he understood me better than anybody there. And I'm talking to him and I'm just pouring my heart out saying, Papa Lake, I don't know what to do because I feel so hurt and abandoned by my savior. I was promised all of these things and I lost my appeal and he said no and I pray every day I fast every Sunday I come to institute I read my scriptures but I feel like the wall is back up like I feel like I don't even know who he is but I don't know how to do it any different I don't know how to not say my prayers. I don't know how to not read my scriptures. I don't know how to not fast every Sunday for my kids. It's become who I am. I don't know what else to do. And I had to leave Institute because at this point I had gotten a job and uh, I teach English and math over at the high school. And so I had to leave and my poor... <laughs> institute teacher I have just like devastated him he's so worried about me and I have to leave and so I just go and um I'm sobbing I am absolutely sobbing all of the way to the education building and I was like I cannot walk in here and teach math looking like this mm -hmm. and uh so I'm like hey Jack, get yourself together and to get myself together, I said, at least you know that no matter what, you love the Lord. And that was the phrase I said to myself, to suck it up and to go in and teach class. And I went in and I taught math. And 
then you have to go back to your rooms every three hours. You get called back to your room for count is what they call it to make sure none of us have escaped. And so you get locked into your room as they go around and make sure everybody's still there. And so I hop back up onto my bunk and just start ugly crying to Heavenly Father. Like, I am mad. I am hurt. I am so angry. I am so disappointed. And I am just telling him. I'm just, I'm just so blunt, honest with him about my feelings. And all of the sudden, he reminds me of my phrase. He's like, you know that no matter what happens, you will always love the Lord. That's all you have. And all of a sudden I was like, that's all I've ever wanted. I've always wanted to be that daughter that loved the Lord and served the Lord. And no matter if another prayer was never answered, another blessing was never received. And I would still pray to him and sing his name. That's all I have. That's huge. It is so life-altering for me. And it was just all of a sudden, this paradigm shift happened. I read a book um, while I was there that was called The Divine Center by Stephen R. Covey. And at the first of this book, I was like highly offended by him because <laughs> it talks about being church-centered and it talks about being friend-centered and it talks about being family-centered and how being family-centered, which is me at the time, but how family-centered was none of these other centers were going to ever be able to be enough that if those family is taken from you, if friends are taken from you, if wealth is taken from you, if these other centers in your life disappear, you will fall unless you are Christ-centered. And at the beginning of not understanding that, but it takes a while to get into this book and to what he's saying, I was like, you're an idiot because family is everything. And that at this point in my mind is what has gotten me through everything not realizing that really it isn't my, my belief in my center on families forever, which is a true principle of the gospel and the gospel and the principle of compensation. Those two principles are what have gotten me through, but those principles are based on Christ and his atonement. That's what has gotten me through all this and not realizing that me thinking it's my family it has gotten me through this. And it did this whole huge shift for me going, if Christ is the center of my life, then just like my favorite conference talk, come what may and love it. I can do that. I can love whatever comes my way because in that, the only reason why anything is happening in my life is because the Lord loves me enough to help me grow and to help me to become like him. What manner of man ought you to be, even as I? He was the most perfect individual. And yet he was hated and persecuted way more than I was. And so it shifted. Things changed. I finally started looking out of myself, looking out from my family and my little circle of protection that I was trying to keep. And I could see the girls more and the women that needed that love. 
And I mean, of course, at this point, I, I had been helping girls with their scriptures. And here was this crazy girl who went and had prayers and scriptures every single morning, morning with her kids and was always going to the chapel and hiding out at the chapel. And hmm. like, they knew that who I was and what I stood for. And all of a sudden, my heart was more, how can I help them? It wasn't always about my own pain, but I still had those moments like when my kids were really sick or something, I'd miss out on a baptism or something like that. Of course, I would have a bad day or be sad, not a bad day, but be sad and and try to uh, push through those things. But it turned towards so much more service and that I could look out amongst my help myself and help others. And at that time, um, a really important person in my life ended up being found guilty. I mean, I didn't know her before, but ended up coming to prison and she had a hateful crime that people don't like. And she came into prison and had I been in a situation that I was before where I didn't focus on other people, it was more my trials and my struggles. I would not have been there for her and she needed me. She was also a very strong member of the church before everything fell apart in her life. She had served a mission and her dad was a huge church official and it was, it was a big deal. And she'd been excommunicated and and didn't have the spirit and she needed somebody. And I just wrapped my arms around her and we became close friends and I taught her the ways and, and helped protect her. And just, it made a lot of difference. I would not have been able to give myself to her had I not had that moment of change of looking past myself. You had a Job moment, Jeanette, where you had been stripped of everything. It seems like such a natural instinct when everything that we love has been taken away from us, where we would want to just curse God and die. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet, again, as I was saying at the beginning of this podcast, here you have this choice to make, that you were denied the appeal, and it could have seemed at that moment that God had forgotten you, or worse, that there was no God. Your existence had no meaning. Some Mm -hmm. people choose that direction, but for you, in that moment, you said, no, I choose to believe, and I choose to continue to love God. And, you know, I, I just find it fascinating. The more stories I hear of people going through some of the the hardest experiences of their life. And in that moment of choice where they could go one way or the other, and those who, who choose to hold on to faith and how God will continue to work in their lives for good. And you wouldn't think that God would be so present in prison. but he can get through those walls. And I love your story so much because it's a reminder to me and to, again, all of us that none of us have sunk too far or too deep to be beyond his love and his concern and his care. And the tender mercies continued for you in prison and you were a tender mercy to others in prison. And so maybe you can just summarize quickly some of the things that because you were there, what were some of the things that you were able to change in the prison for good to make it a a better experience for others who were incarcerated? 
Um, so starting simple, there would be, of course, women that would come and just have gospel questions, um, hurt, pain, whatever was coming on that they, they didn't understand the same thing. You know, God's done this. If, if God's real, then why are there children that suffer? Why are pain, so much pain in these women in their lives? Um, most of them. So 99.9% of every woman in prison has been abused. Uh, when I found that out, I mean, there's just a common thread. Women are abused and you have a tattoo and that's just how it is. And so there was always questions of excommunication and the painfulness of this or that and whatever. And I was able to sit with these women and to talk to them and to teach them the doctrine of love and why God does some of the things that he would do. And it would be so incredible to me because the Lord would just pour these words into my head and out my mouth. They were definitely not from me. And all of a sudden these things would just spill out. And it was so powerful and so moving for me because not only did it like heal their soul, but it enlightened and taught me how deep and powerful. Okay, Toma is. I'm sorry. I am such a crybaby. You're just um, fine. And the atonement is just so not understood and the power and the depth of the love that the savior has for every single individual. I have felt him walk the walls of prison. Now, not necessarily in prison, in the buildings, like his spirit is there, but in the Institute building where it was set apart, we talk about, it's incredible that the Lord's there. There is a spirit in that chapel that is just so undeniable and it was my haven and it was so hard for me because I would run and hide there and I realized when I needed to look out beyond myself that I had to stop hiding there and I had to start spending more time in the unit with these women that didn't go to that chapel I had to spend more time in the dark and I did not want to do that because I just wanted to be at the chapel but I did, and I stepped back from being there all day, every day to teaching, teaching high school, to teaching um, coping skills, teaching and coming up with a program. We had anger management and we had grieving and we had, oh, there were so many classes we came up with, um, parenting mm -hmm. classes. Haha, -ha, that was the funniest that I'm in there teaching parenting. Um, there was so many different classes in a program that we put because we realized that women are in prison for different reasons than men are. And the women need coping skills and they need to be treated with kindness and an opportunity to heal and to move on to not be repeat offenders. And one of the biggest problem is that most of the women there are mothers. And there's a statistic out there that if one of the parents goes to prison, that 80, there's an 80% chance that a child from a home of an inmate will end up being an inmate themselves. And that was painful for me because I was one of those numbers. My dad did go to prison. And then it was evident that it was true because you had generations of women here who their parents and their 
than, than themselves and now their child. Um, when I first came to prison and there were so many women that were pregnant and giving birth. And I just was horrified at the fact that any judge would ever send a woman pregnant to a jail or prison. And then realizing that they actually will get medical care because when they're not in prison, they're on the streets and they're doing drugs and they're being raped and they're being beat. And that prison is a safe haven for them kind of changed my thought process there, but you see this generation. And so we started, there was um, an old class or an old program that was called family psych. And they would allow a therapist to come in and a family member to come and meet with the inmates and do like this therapy thing. But that program had failed, but the funding and the like base kind of thing for that was there. And I had heard rumors of this family psych program that no longer existed. And so I was disgusted with how the women are treated with visiting and their children and all that other stuff. And so I wrote up a proposal and took it to my captain and listed all these things and the problems with the visiting the way it is, the need for women to be able to connect with their children and have a healthy relationship with their children, which needed to happen while incarcerated, because you can't just go from all to nothing and nothing to all without mm-hmm. you. Like, it just doesn't work. Like did, I pulled up tons of studies. I had my husband send in and look up things for me. And, and I came up with this proposal and I took it to him with a long list of supplies that we would need people that would donate um, the toys and all this stuff, like a huge list and put it through a proposal system with him. And he just laughed at me. He's like, this is never going to work, but he allowed me to do the proposal and he approved it and he sent it forward and it got approved. And so we changed family psych to be a parent reunification program so that children could come and be in an environment where there's a therapist so that nothing inappropriate could happen, but that the kids could come and sit on the floor with their parents and play toys and have physical contact and to do homework and and to work on reunification so that a bond could be developed and that people that just had a baby would actually still be able to see their kid and and different things like that. So we started that program. Um, Like I say, I was teaching tons of classes as far as conflict resolution and all those life skill classes. And I ended up only being at the chapel, probably two hours a day versus six hours a day. I ended up becoming what they call the unit coordinator. Um, The cops struggled putting me in as the unit coordinator, because at this point, the prison really has been run by gangs. You hear that? It's true. They have the lead gang members run the prison because it strikes enough fear in all the inmates. And they know that dirty stuff is going on. They know that drugs are being passed. They know that fights are happening. They know that inappropriate relationships are happening. They know all those things are happening, but things run a little bit smoother because there is an intimidation of behaving to a certain degree. Right. Mm -hmm. And at this point, all the unit coordinators have been the upper level of the gangs and they were terrified to put me in as unit coordinator because they were afraid of the revolt that they would have 
in the building because I don't do any of those things. I don't swear. I don't drink coffee and I don't have a girlfriend and I don't do drugs. So this was going to be a little bit of a change, but they finally decided to go ahead and put me in. And I had my friend who had come in. That's very religious as well, that I told you about. Mm-hmm. And she was my assistant coordinator. So there was a big joke that um, God and Jesus were running the building mm-hmm. or they would call us Joseph and Brigham. Um, we were called Holy Rollers, like all those crazy things, but we ran the building. And while doing that, I got to work with the captains and the sergeants and the deputy warden and the warden of the prison. Like everything I did, I was working directly with them. And I was hiring women for jobs and putting them in leadership positions in each tier of the building. And yes, most of them were my friends, if you can call them that. Um, It was like having, they told me, it was like having an inside police work in the scene. And everybody knew, everybody knew the cops had my back. I had been set up so many times by people to try and get me in trouble, to get me beat up, to get me put in max or any of those things so that I would lose privileges and lose favor with the cops. And none of it ever worked. It actually did the opposite. The cops always believed me because I'd never lied to them. And it made the building run so smooth. And at this point I could go to the captain and recommend any type of program or any type of class and and really do what was in best interest of these women. And he would listen to me. We got to paint our rooms bright, cherry colors. And instead of just being in this gray, horrible, sterile environment, and we had parties and it was, it was, you know, don't get me wrong. Prison is horrendous. And the environment there is not fun. The very, very, very worst day you could possibly imagine out of prison is probably the best day you'll ever have in prison. And the things that I saw and the things that I experienced are not mentionable. But then there's the other tender mercies and the beautiful things that would happen. I'd have the women come to me and say that there was an evil spirit in that room. And because I am the unit coordinator and I have the trust of the guards, I can go wherever I want in this building. And I would just go to the window and I would say, I need to go to their room and bless their room. And they would say, okay. And I would go and I would go to these women's rooms and pray with them and cast out spirits for them in the name of the priesthood that my husband held and holds. And I was able to just make this building a better place for these women to heal, to learn, and to overcome. It's just remarkable, that period of your life. So hard. But again, it's so fascinating to see how God was still weaving himself in your life and the tender mercies there. But I know that it can be very, very hard coming out of prison Mm -hmm. to go back to normal life. Getting a job can be very difficult, but just the way that you're treated by Mm -hmm. the community. So Mm -hmm. 
Tell me about your experience coming back home. How did people respond to you? So I was really blessed in that my ward, most of my close friends and things like that, they wrote to me. They, I have such great support throughout this whole thing. They all went to the trial, all this stuff. So I have, I have a really great community who, who knows me, knows the situation and, and loves my family and, and helps sustain and support them while I was gone. So that also helped that I kept in contact all day, every day with my husband and my kids with the letters and calling home and, and just staying in contact. So many women, they told me, you know, you need to let go of all that, live in prison. And then when that's over, then you go home and they, they lived their life that way, but they would go home and have such huge adjustment periods that were just too hard to deal with. It was, it was really traumatic. And while it was absolutely painful to be aware of every second and every moment of my kid's life while in prison and not being able to do a thing about it, it was a lifesaver in my transition because I was still so aware of my kids and there was still that connection with them. And so coming home, it was rough. Um, it's six years. My youngest has only known me as living in prison. In fact, she thought that's where my home was. She had no idea that I live with her. Um, so I was like, I'm coming home. And she's like, you are home. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm coming home to live with you. And she's like, what? You know, like just completely flabbergasted. So that's hard to come home and to have not been the parent, to not been the one making the rules and doing these things. And everybody's giving me advice of make sure you ease yourself slowly back in because that's not my personality. And to not just get in there and be the mom and change the rules and all those other things. <laughs> We're at day three, maybe. And I'm trying really hard not to just take over. And we're sitting at the kitchen table and my children are barbarians. My husband's fantabulous, but he's a boy. And there's just <laughs> only so much he could do with four girls at home under the age of 10. And they are a nightmare at the table. You, there's just food flying everywhere, mouths open as they're chewing, farting, burping. <laughs> like I was just sitting there with my mouth open. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And that was it. I was done. I was like, okay, nope, nope, that's not happening. And, and then, and my gradual transition was done. So, but that was, that was hard. It was hard for my husband to, you know, let go and give that to me. And so, you know, there's, there's conflict there. Um, and so we're working through that in the community. Luckily the school principal knew me very well. Once again, um, been through the whole three and a half years and very supportive because I was always the PTA mom and going into help with the kids. And I was always very involved in my children's lives and their education. And so she knew that I would want that back. And so she had gone to the district and gotten permission for me to be back in the school, which I thought would never happen. And that was another tender mercy. And I was able to be room mom and to go on field trips. And, but it was always hard because it's like, you have this, I'm on parole and you have this weird, just little monkey on your back of, do people know the plastered across the media? Is a mom going to flip out? 
is somebody going to say, I hurt their kid? Like there's just all these things, right? Constantly in your mind. But school ended up being great. I was really welcomed back into the community. But then at church, you've got, my ward was kind of split. Some of them knew me. Some of them didn't know me because when all this happened, the ward boundaries changed and I'm coming home and they're just like, okay, we read everything in the paper. I end up getting a, a bishop that, bless his heart, really was trying to do what he felt was best. Um, but he saw me as guilty and saw me that I should have been excommunicated and that I had definitely not paid the price. And so because I was just put on probation with the church, he felt like that whole situation was handled wrong. And he sent things to the first presidency and tried to get things changed. So there was a lot of hurt and frustration when I'm like trying to work with my bishop and here I've come from six years of the most amazing bishops and volunteers at the church that are just so non-judgmental everything is just love 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 there's no pretense everybody's there as a sinner right we were obviously in prison for a reason and these volunteers were just the most amazing people you've ever met and non-judgmental and to come home to a bishop that really felt like things should be different was really hard. And I had to have permission from the first presidency to come off of um, probation, but with the church, but I'm on parole. And so my Bishop feels like as long as I'm on parole, I shouldn't be able to come off of probation with the church. So he's not willing to submit the paperwork or even move forward with the idea of me being able to come off probation to get my temple recommend back, to hold callings, any of that stuff. And so I'm, I'm really trying really hard to work with him, but it, it's very painful. Finally, after I put in with my parole officer to get off parole after a year um, and they denied it, they were like, nope, and she can't reapply for 30 months <laughs> to come off parole. And so I'm like, great, I'm never getting off parole. And so I'm never getting back into the temple. And I go back to my bishop and I explain this. And he's like, well, I'll think about it. Like maybe because you were denied parole and we were thinking that you being on probation, he, he said, I was figuring you being on probation for at least a year would be at least something and that I might consider letting you off. And um, <laughs> so hmm. gracious of you. Um, and so- at this point, it's been 18 months of me being home and I'm still paperwork hasn't been filed and I'm just want to get back to the temple. And my mom has passed away. It was her greatest desire to be back in the temple with me. And so it was really hard that she had passed away so close to me coming home and I still was not be able to go to the temple with her. So finally I go to my stake president. And I'm like, look, I just pour my heart and soul out to him. And he says, okay, you know, let me see what I can do. And the next thing I know, the Bishop is pulling me in and said that he feels inspired that we should start my paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but little do you know, I 
went somewhere and talked to somebody because he did not tell him. But anyway, so we start my paperwork and it comes back and he's like, you know, just warning you, it, it's probably going to take a couple times of doing this before they'll let you off probation. And I remember getting a phone call from the state president, letting me know that they've cleared me and that I can go back to the temple. And it was in March and I was up in Park City and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I was just so elated that I could finally go back to the temple. And my husband and I had this tradition that for our wedding anniversary and for Valentine's Day, we always go to the temple and do ceilings or a session. Being, we really feel like on Valentine's Day, we do the ceilings because then we're renewing our vows. And on our anniversary, we'll go do a session and we'll just pick a different temple and go do a session. And so our anniversary is in April. And I found out in March that I was going to be able to go back to the temple. And I was so very excited because that meant I was going to be able to go to the temple for my anniversary. And so, I mean, it was just, it was so, so very hard. Some of the things that I continue to face with my um, bishop because even though I got my temple recommend back, I couldn't have a calling with the youth. But if I was volunteering or I was invited to, to go do things with my children, the stake president said, then I could attend these activities. And so I would. And then he decided that that was too lenient. And what was the point of me being on probation if I could still go hang out in young women's? I was just like with my annotation and all this stuff. And I was like, you're missing the point. This isn't to go usurp your power. This is just so that I can be a mother in Zion and be with my kids and have these experiences. Like I wanted to go on trek and be with my kids. And, and he was like, nope, you can't, you can't do that. Um, so it was really, really hard that here I'm getting tons of support in the society at school and all these things that you would think would be more likely to say no and my church is saying, no, uh, we don't trust you. You're a black eye. You know, we can't take the risk. And the church's name is more important than your need to be a mother. These are the feelings and the thoughts going through my head as I'm constantly being rejected. And it, it, that, it, was, a, it was a really, really difficult time. And, and so I remember just coming home from one of my appointments with the bishop just sobbing looking at my husband and saying, if this happened to anybody else in our ward, in our church, if people were treated like this, they would never stay. They would run. And would it be anybody else? This would have broken them. I remember saying that, which sounds very arrogant, but it was so painful and powerful. And I just looked at him and I said, I am not going to allow human error to take away what I know is true. Hmm. Because as much as this man, who is just a man, is trying his hardest, I'm not going to rely on him to decide my worth and to decide if Heavenly Father loves me, because he really is just trying to do his best just as I'm trying to do my best. And, uh, you know, I completely understand that after everything I've been through that I never want to judge somebody else and their motivations and why they do what they do because the Lord knows better than I do. Mm -hmm. And he's not, he's just a man. 
He's not the Lord. He's not the Savior. And I don't need to rely on him for my self-worth. It's that divine centerpiece again, right? Yep. Which is so key. And I, I hope that as people listen to this, because I, I know so many people who struggle with the church because of an individual or individuals who have mistreated them. And it, it could be a family member or a bishop. And it's so important to be able to, to keep your focus on the Lord and your testimony tied to him. And then no matter what other people choose to do or say, you'll be able to withstand those fiery darts. The so, fiery darts never stop coming. I mean, mm-hmm. since I got home, like, my, like I say, my mom died. My kids just trying to put the pieces back together and adjust and heal from the trauma. You can't heal from trauma when you're in the midst of it. As I tell my husband, you can't bail all the water out of the basement when it's still raining and flooding. It's not going to work. But when we finally were home and able to start healing from the trauma, it's amazing how much trauma there was. And our kids are amazing. You would never know at this point, but we're nine years out. Um, One of my daughters attempted suicide and since I've been home and there's just been a lot of trials and a lot of heartache and it never ends. But if you are centered in Christ, that's your strength. You know that you can do this. You know that you can find that ability to continue forward. I know that no matter what the Lord throws at me, that it's in my best interest. That was something that was so hard for me to overcome because I'm a control freak or I used to be a control freak needing to know the answers, needing to know why this works this way and needing to be in charge of everything because my life had been so out of control being abused and stuff like that. I was a serious control freak. And so to have the gift that he has blessed me from all of this, um, to let go of that and to allow him to be in charge. I remember that lesson in Relief Society about the handcart companies and how they would say, you know, there was that lesson that they were talking bad about the company and that they shouldn't have done this and they shouldn't have done that. And if they would have only done this and really being hard on the decisions that were made. And one of the older gentlemen standing up and saying, you speak of things you know not of. Mm-hmm. And that we died and the things that we went through gave us the testimony and the experiences that we have. And I don't remember it exactly, but he's like, that's what draw, drew us closer to God. And, and you have no idea what you're talking about. And I feel that with my experience that I've been through, like, it's so hard for me because I would never have chosen this trial. If I could have my daughter with me, of course I would choose that. And so it's so very hard for me to know that the most horrific experience I could ever fathom is what gave me some of the greatest gifts of my life that caused me to let go of my control issues that gave me a relationship with my heavenly father that helps me through every decision in my life that I mean I I know my heavenly father more than I could have ever imagined I would ever gain in this life and I love him and he is everything to me and I would not have had that before what I've been through the sacrifice that my daughter has given and the blessing that she has given to me 
by being willing to come here and to teach me the things that I needed to be so that I could be like my father in heaven and to have these blessings is really hard sometimes to wrap my mind around because I would never ever do that and it seems so weird to be grateful for something so horrendous hmm. well the lord's ways are higher than our ways always <laughs> that's, uh, probably another primary takeaway from all of this but thank you so much Jeanette this has sure. really been a, a gift for me to hear your story and your faith and I think you've probably already answered this question, but we have to end. If yes. there's anything you want to add to what you've already shared, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? Because it is the truth of all things. It is the very fiber of my being, the love I have for the Lord, the truthfulness of the gospel, the power and the gift of the atonement, the peace and the love that it brings to my heart, I could not not do with the things that I do. It, it floors me sometimes when I look at my family and choices they've made and different siblings and things. And I go, I don't know how they function without this gift of the gospel. And it's not the people, it's not the church. It's the principles and the ordinances and the blessings and the power that come from the temple. And the temple is my everything. It is the center because the center of the temple is Christ. And our ordinances and our blessings and our gifts that come from the principles and ordinances of the gospel, that's why I keep growing because I want that love. I want that peace. And there's nothing more motivating and more powerful to me than having the Savior as my best friend. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.